knowing what you believe and why you believe it lies at the very heart of Christian experience, worship, and everyday living. The Bible's not about you. You're not David. Trouble in life is not Goliath. Jesus is going to be David in the shadow. Goliath is going to be sin and death. Who's that make you? Uh, and it doesn't make you the Israelites in the corner going, he's going to kill all of us. That's exactly who you are. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I, with body and soul, life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Gospel is that God the Son freely agreed to die our death for us, to suffer our deserved condemnation and doom in our place. And he didn't just agree from eternity to do it, he actually did it. It is fatal, fatal for us to think that we can ever move on from the gospel. The great problem in the evangelical church today where the scripture is concerned is not the inerrancy of the Bible. The great problem in the evangelical church today is the sufficiency of scripture. We don't think it's sufficient to do what we have to do. So we have to wake up what's happening and recognize that the problem really is our lack of theology. Hi and welcome to Theology Gals. I'm Colleen Sharp and my co-host is Angela Whitehorn and tonight we have with us a return guest, someone we've had on before and that is Scott Keith and we're kind of, it's almost like June is going to be 15, 17 months since we're having two people from 15, 17 on. But, um, you know, we really love the work they're doing over at 15, 17. And actually, Scott, why don't you tell people, for those not familiar with 15, 17, like what you guys are doing and some of the projects you have going? Yeah, so our sort of tagline is that we exist to share the gospel of Christ Jesus with as many people as possible in as many ways as possible. And we do that by hosting and supporting various websites, including our own site, 1517, which is at 1517.1517.org, um, and various podcasts. We support a podcast network that has 13 podcasts on it um, at this point and is um, growing and despite our, our desire to keep it kind of small. <laughs> um, and then we support a website called Christ Hold Fast, um, Jagged Word, and we have conferences. We do a big national conference in October and then local conferences throughout the year um, that are called city events. We also have a speakers bureau where we send people out all over the world, really, to do speaking gigs in support of proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Um, and then we also uh, have a publishing house um, called 1517 Books, uh, where we publish what we think are important works that probably um, otherwise would find a narrower audience. Um, and so people can check that out. Uh, you can find everything just at 1517.org. That's just easy, 1517.org. And you have a, a few books or books that you've contributed to and books that you've written. You have I have a the little booklet that you wrote on Melanchthon. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I I. I got it at the Here We Still Stand conference. So let's mention the Here We Still Stand conference also, which is wonderful in San Diego in October. Do you know the exact dates for this? Yes, yeah, 14th. Oh my gosh, I'm horrible at dates. I think it's 14th, 15th, and 16th. Um, let me look real quick here. Oh, shoot. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, but they can check that out. That's, that's all over our website um, too. 
Yeah, and you can actually watch the videos. Um, I don't know if the second year is up there, but I know the first year is up there. I think if you go to herewestillstand.org and you'll, there's a little tab that says videos because I'll often share them with people. So if you want to get a taste of what the conference is like, it's um, I've been and it's a great, a great little conference. And then um, you have the, the Jagged Word book. Why don't you mention that one real quick? Yeah, it's called Jagged Word Field Guide to Being a Man. Um, it's basically a series of essays um, written by various authors on the website, The Jagged Word, um, that have to do with masculinity, family, friendship, um, fellowship, that kind of thing that um, along with my friend Paul Koch, I edited, edited it together in a volume that I call, it's kind of like an old school bathroom reader, something that you can read and each article can be read in about 10 seconds. Um, it's broken <laughs> into six de- different parts, really easy. Um, it's, it's fun, Much of, many of the articles are humorous. And I really recommend it for to give to men because it's perspective from um, several different men, several of whom are pastors, but many of whom aren't, who just are giving their perspectives on things that are important to us. And then also the Jagged Word blog, um, which you had mentioned earlier, which I recommend. It's one of the blogs that I have always uh, enjoyed. But let's, for those who haven't heard our previous episode with you, which I will link in the episode notes, and we're going to talk about some of the same sorts of things, but maybe um, emphasize different aspects of it. Um, Can you talk about your book, Being Dad, and what that's about? And let me say, there's going to be a lot for moms in this episode, too, so... Um, keep, keep listening. Yeah, the, the book is, well, I actually think being dads is a helpful thing for moms, too, because uh, the book is about sort of addressing the issue that what it means to be a man and what it means to be a father in our modern society is very um, skewed, um, even in the church. Mm-hmm. And so the full title of the book is Being Dad, Father as a Picture of God's Grace. And what I put forward in the book is the idea that we sort of have a reverse idea of what the Bible talks, talks to us about when it talks about being what it is to be a man, what it is to be a father. And it's the reason we have the reverse idea, I'd say, is really because at our core, we're, we always want to take our ideas and press them on the Bible and press them on God rather than allowing him to speak to us through his word. And when he speaks to us through his word, what he says is often very countercultural. It doesn't make any sense. Um, using our sort of human reason, it's, it's doesn't make a lot of sense to us. And that's the pictures we get in the scriptures. Um, I use the parable of the prodigal son from Luke chapter 15 as a jumping off point. Um, and the father in that parable, who we always sort of put up as an exemplar of being a father, but then we kind of turn it around to a worksy sort of way and say, well, um, he's, a, he's a good father for this, that, and the other reason, when in the re- in reality, what that parable sets up for us is, is a picture of what we, left to our own devices, would call a bad father. And when his son comes in and makes a completely unreasonable demand of him, that he give up, you know, really his status, his, his, uh, his life, at least figuratively, in order to give up half of his wealth to the son, who didn't deserve it who wouldn't have had it anyway the father actually doesn't he doesn't rebuke the son he doesn't tell him no that's crazy and he does it at his own expense um, at the expense of really costing him his status in his home costing him his status in society 
costing him his status in his religion um, and really costing him his status before his other son. And as the story progresses, his father just keeps doing that. He makes gracious moves when really we would say what needs what he needs to do is to stop, chastise, and punish. And every time we see that his need to stop, chastise, and punish, he comes in and forgives and has mercy and shows grace. And so while realizing that the main the main reason Christ told that parable was to talk to us about the kingdom of heaven and to teach the people whom he was speaking to at the time what the kingdom of heaven was like and what the God the Father is like. We get an ancillary benefit there of one of the only places in scripture where Christ actually describes um, God the Father, i.e. what we would, I think, say the perfect father figure by using a character that we can understand who's a human male father. Um, but when he does it, he turns our ideas of what that should look like on its head. And so throughout the book, I try to sort of use story storytelling that people have told me and pictures and ideas um, to really present what that countercultural view of a father in modern day terms might look like. Wow. Um, you know, Scott, I have not read your book yet, but what I am hearing and what you're saying is that um, a lot of times our idea of what dad should be is kind of very law-centered, that dad's supposed to come in and lay down the law and um, be the enforcer. And, um, and really what the word calls us to um, is for dad to be one who's giving the gospel. Absolutely. Um, one of the lines I use in the book is that we expect, and in the home too, and in the church, we even teach that the father ought to be sort of the deeper voice and the bigger biceps to, mm. to mom. Mm. Um, and what we get, if we use especially the parable of the prodigal son, is what we get is the exact opposite of that. We get that the father's calling is to forgive, to mm. be waiting on the sinning children to return. And once they do return, to bring them back into the family, to not double down on the law when the laws are done its work on them. Yeah. But to be gracious, to be forgiving, to spread the gospel within their family first. You know, I kind of like your thoughts on on something because as my kids got older, I really, I really became convinced that um, that Scripture does give us a framework for our parenting in the example of Christ and in the example of of the Father in like the story that that you're telling. But one thing that I'm seeing is I think that a lot of um, young parents right now that grew up in more legalistic uh, circles. So I think about even even my older children, you know, being in some of these homeschool circles with a lot of legalism and stuff like that. And so what, what we're seeing now is some of the maybe overcorrection to that. And um, mm-hmm. there's sometimes an emphasis on this grace-centered parenting, but it's it's absent the law. And I love what you just said right now, because you said when the law has done its job. And I often think of uh, yeah. something Luther said, that the law is for the hard-hearted and the gospel for the brokenhearted, where there are right. times where my children need the <clears throat> law. And then there are those times where the law has done its job and they need the gospel. Um, could you just talk about maybe where the law is appropriate 
in our parenting, um, along with, I mean, I think the gospel should always be there. shouldn't be just one or the other, but um, mm-hmm. could you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Even when I was writing the book, I knew that one of the biggest concerns would be that I was advocating permissiveness on the parts of parents. Um, I, a lot of what I did sort of piggybacked off of what um, Rod Rosenblatt had done in lectures for years. And so I, I knew that this was going to be the case because this is what people always think when he talks. And then when I went out to go teach on this, that very much was the first question. Um, and so in the book, I say, you know, I'm not, I'm not advocating for permissive parenting here. And if you were to talk to my now uh, grown children, they would tell you in no uncertain terms that I was not, and probably still am not a permissive parent. Um, what I'm advocating for here is forgiveness. Um, what I'm advocating here is the idea that the law may correct behavior in the short term, but the only way your children are going to know that they're part of the family and that they can never not be part of the family is through the gospel. Um, the only real sort of long-term behavior change where your child starts to act like a member of the family instead of somebody warring against the family will be through forgiveness and the gospel. The reality is that the law is needed um, a lot. But the other reality is, is that law is the thing that is most prevalent in everyone's life. Mm. And I'd say even more so in the lives of children. I, I often say when I'm speaking that in even the most permissive of households, a, a normal child's life is probably dictated by the law more than we realize. Now, we may call this, as Dave Zal does, sort of little L law, but think of it in terms of do they decide when they wake up in the morning? Do, you decide, do they decide what time they go to school? Or even if they're homeschooled, what time that starts? What they eat for breakfast or when they eat it? when they go on recess, when they go to lunch or what they have for lunch, when they when school is out or when homeschool is done, when they go to soccer or piano practice, how much TV they get to watch at night before they go to bed or what their bedtime is or whether or not they get to brush their teeth or don't. You know, things are very much dictated for them. And so if we can sort of reframe our thought and say, well, they just live in this world that they get to do whatever they want and say, really, they don't live in that world. Um, They may be misbehaving and the law short-term consequence may be necessary, but in the long-term, they need to know that they're loved unconditionally by this family, this family that God has put them into. um, And that we honestly, as their parents have brought them into intentionally or not. Um, And that they're here because of us and that we love them and that there's nothing that they can do that's going to get them out of this. That's, mm-hmm. that's more what I'm advocating for. Now, the law is absolutely necessary, but think of it in, in these terms. The, the Lutheran theologian, uh, American Lutheran theologian, C.F.W. Walther, has a great line when he's talking about the job of the pastor. He, sa- he essentially boils the job of the pastor down to understanding when the law has already done its work within his flock and then coming in full force, 200 proof with the voice of the gospel. I think the father's role in the home is just that to discern, which is not easy when the law has done its work and then to stop with the law and to come in hardcore with the voice of the freeing and forgiving gospel of Christ Jesus. So just a clarifying question, you know, about discerning when the law has done its work as a dad, are you looking for, 
the law has done its work when I see full compliance or when I see heartbreak or what is it that you're sort of looking for? That's kind of funny that you use that word. We have a big sign up at our cabin in Big Bear that my wife got a few years ago that kind of hangs over our fireplace, which says, keys are not compliant. Um, (laughs) Because, I mean, I'm certainly not a compliant person and we didn't raise our children to be compliant. Um, We raised our children to be free, to be thinking, to be forgiven individuals who in turn hopefully get that. And as people forgiven in Christ share that forgiveness with each other, we didn't raise them to be perfectly obedient or compliant. Um, Because to expect that would be to expect something of them that we're not willing to do ourselves. Mm, mm -hmm. Um, And that's, I mean, I think that's the biggest flaw in this. I've often said that um, one of the, one of the worst parenting sort of apparatus that we've supported in the United, probably all over the world. I know from the United States is this idea that mom and dad always have to be on the same page when it comes to dealing with the kids or that mom always has to support dad or that dad always has to support mom. The assumption there is that the two people that are bigger and way more aren't sinners like the people that are smaller and way less. Mm. Um, That that they know best all the time and that they're always right, even though they're just as deep, dirty, dark sinners as the little ones, and that they never are wrong. That mom never made a bad decision in the heat of the moment, and that dad never made, for that matter, never made a bad decision or an overdone punishment in the heat of the moment. And that they just need to support each other. What if they sort of, you know, helped each other out by, in fact, saying, you know what, let's go over here and talk because that was too much. And we need to actually figure out um, how to proceed from here. We actually need to figure out how to make this, this you know, situation that's now gotten horrible, not horrible. How, how they can know that everything's going to be okay and, frankly, if you're speaking to your spouse, how you can know everything's going to be okay. Um, how do we spread forgiveness to the situation? How do, we, how do we let everybody in the situation know that we are all sinners forgiven on account of Christ and that the thing that defines this house is forgiveness and absolution? We have, we have to get past, I think we have to get past that. And we will never get past it uh, in the United States, I think, with how, um, with what a small voice you know, culturally, we currently allow men to have in their in their homes, let alone in society as a whole. You know, um, I think I shared this with you when when you were on before that a friend that I grew up in. We went to a church where the gospel was very clearly preached, and I ran into him. You know, when we're in our thirties, and we'd uh, been in church together in our teenage years, and he had completely left the church, and so I just asked him why. And he said, I could never be good enough for my parents. How was I ever going to be good enough for God? And when I read through your book, that is what kept ringing in my head. And one of the things that you talked about before is how our understanding of God is directly tied to our fathers. Could you talk about that a little bit? I mean, it's it's absolutely tragic in a sense that that's the case, but um, when we look at uh, the data that comes from really secular sort of psychological studies done belief and on areas of trust and whatnot, what comes up time and time again is that a child's view of God 
is all is usually you can't even when you do statistics i always have to say this when you talk about statistics if you have a different situation you have to sort of see yourself as an anomaly outside the statistic not as part of it which is totally possible because statistics are always sort of the thirty thousand foot view they're never the the three foot view um so having said that when we look at the statistics time and time again the answers to these surveys um are that a child's view of God is directly correlative to their view of father. Kind of said in, a, in an easier way, if a child can say when asked, you know, what do you think of your father? And they say, well, he's a decent guy. He, he tries to take care of us. You know, he tries to, to look out for us. He's, he's pretty good. Um, I know he loves me. They can say that kind of thing. When you ask them, what's your view of God? They'll say very similar things. Well, I know God loves us. I know he takes care of us. On the flip side, if you ask that child, what do you think of your dad? And they say, well, I never knew him because he, he left me before I, I could even know him. And then you say, what was your, what do you think of God? They're going to say, I don't even think he's there. Just kind of like their dad's never there. Or if they ask, what's your dad like? And they say, well, he's a real jerk. He's always out to get me. And then you say, "What's your what? Do you, what are your views of God?" They're gonna say, "Well, he seems like a real jerk, who always just is looking to punish me for something, for something I've done I've done wrong." Um, the sad part is that in in America, it's somewhere between forty three to forty six percent of all children will grow up in a home where there is no father, and that statistic is just getting worse. Um, I'm often asked to come to churches that are essentially dying. Um, and that one of the things they want to know is what's happening. Why don't any of, our, any of our kids go come to church? Why don't any of our grandkids come to church? And churches are very fond of doing, you know, like youth programs and family small groups and uh, contemporary worship to try to up that number. And some are successful with that. But the reality is, is that most of the reason that we're losing young people to the faith um, is because there's not a father influence in the home. Um, and if there is, he's probably not the one who's sort of leading the faith input in the home. Scott, what you were talking about um, just right now, I've seen that exact same thing. I talk to girls a lot who will message me and, and say they really struggle with assurance. And um, and I'll say, so why do you struggle with assurance? And so like one example, the girl said, I'm so afraid God is going to leave me. And I really feel like he loves everybody else more than he loves me. Oh, and I'm yeah. talking to her for, her for a while. And I finally said, um, tell me about your dad. And yeah. she said, well, <clears throat> he left us when I was, you know, whatever age. And so that, you know, there's the fear of God leaving her. And, and then she says, and I... I really was his least favorite. He really yeah. loved my siblings more. How can we help people that are in situations like that, that, that had a, a, a father that wasn't there or maybe, you know, had other issues? Um, do you have any encouragement for somebody like that? Well, um, I hope so. I, I'm bad at this. I mean, one of the things that people want me to do is uh, always when I give this talk is to give advice. And um, over the years, I've gotten more comfortable with it. When I first started, I was almost completely unwilling to do it at all. But now having done this for a while, I can say that, you know, that if we go back up just a second, 
the problem is is deep. Um, if the stats are right, and it's almost half the children in our country are growing up without any father in a home, there's there are deep sort of religious and faith consequences of that, but there are deep sociological con- consequences of that too. Um, and the first thing that we taking the you know this this young lady that you spoke to out of it for a second, the first thing that we need to do if we can do anything is to sort of stand up against this culture that discourages men from being men and that discourages men from being fathers and that discourages young parents from becoming parents. Um, It's just, this is, it's toxic. I mean, and it's, it's toxic not only to the church and to faith, but it's toxic to society. I mean, it's not toxic masculinity. That's the problem. It's the absolute lack of masculinity. That's the problem. We, most children grow up in, you know, half children grow up in a home where they're, is no father. 70 some odd percent of their teachers are women, which means that those children, those 40 some odd percent have 100% influence from women in their life and none from men. And this goes deep and you'll run into story after story like this young lady. The best thing I could say to do that if you know somebody like this is, um, whether you're a man or a woman, honestly, become a friend and a mentor to them. Because if you can get to know somebody like that well enough to assure them that there is nothing that they can do that will break your support of them and your care of them and even your sort of said more globally love of them in Christ, that goes a long way to rebuilding some of that trust. If this can be done by like a husband and a wife, even better. I mean, women like the young lady, you met need to meet some men that aren't like her father that would stand by her that would not leave her that would support her i mean i would i would guess that that young lady is having a hard time finding a man to spend her life with that she thinks that she could trust that she thinks won't leave her i mean this stuff goes deep it's rough i feel like jordan peterson you know where he goes up to young men and says what Life is bad, probably worse than you think. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I think, you know, maybe some of the statistics say, yeah, um, for a lot of people, it's, it's worse than some of us have experienced maybe. And, um, you know, extending support and care to others who have had a different experience than we have. Um, like you said, it can go a long way. Yeah, there's a, I mean, there's a lot of stuff in our current age for, for Christians to stand up against. I mean, there's this absolutely atrocious stuff that's going on with abortion in our country right now. Um, but this one often gets overlooked because it's been, I mean, it's been sort of laying in, in the weeds for a while. This idea that we don't need men in our lives and that children don't need men in their lives and that women could do it by themselves. Um been laying in the weeds for a while but it's really over the last decade probably longer honestly popped its ugly head up in uh, media and in culture and it's damaging it's really damaging we're starting to see some pushback against it right now but my fear sometimes is that some of the pushback uh goes to the complete other side of the pendulum and you know you get you get uh, every navy seal in the world who can uh, teach you to do jujitsu is the one that's the leading all our men and that that's the only picture they get of masculinity or what it means to be a masculine man. 
And I think that's dangerous too. Um, I think what it means to be a masculine man is to be strong enough to be gracious, to be powerful enough to be merciful, and to be, uh, I'd say, decisive enough to speak the words of Christ to another sinner, to his family, to the people that God has called into his life, and to, to have the courage to look at them and say, in the name of Jesus Christ, I forgive you. That's masculine. That's the picture that we get. I sometimes call him the most masculine man in the Bible. That's the picture that we get of the father and the prodigal son. He's not presented as a big, strong man who can flip people on their back and pin them. He's presented as a man who's brave enough to let his son go because he knows that the love that he's shown to his son over his lifetime will be remembered at some point, even if it takes a rock bottom experience for the son to get there. He knows he'll return. Mm-hmm. And he, when he does return, he has the courage to accept him back. He has the courage to risk the family again. And then he has the courage to stand up to the older son when he objects and the courage to invite the son into the party, even after his objection. That's masculine. That's the picture that we need to put out there. That's the scriptural picture. That's the picture of a loving father. And it's, it's and a loving man, honestly. And it's, it's lacking and it's lacking. And I think that people like Jordan B. Peterson and Jocko have about half the answer. Mm. Well, you know, you were talking about um, so many of our kids growing up today don't have a father um, or a father figure in their life. Um, but I do know that we have a lot of men listeners, even though we're theology gals, and um, a lot of them are um, dads, and they are just kind of trying to walk it out day by day, and they're doing their best. So do you have any advice to those men who might be our listeners um, who are thinking about how can I um, be the Bible's version of a masculine man in my home? Here's my, I don't have advice for them. I have encouragement for them. I would say to every man I meet in this situation, I'd say if you read my book and if you're honest with yourself, you'll find that you're doing these things already. And what I hope that reading my book does is encourages you to focus on those things that you're doing already instead of focusing on all those other things that society and honestly, even our church tells you you ought to be doing. Hmm. You will read this book and you will remember the time that you released your child from something you will remember the time when you forgave them when they deserved more punishment or hugged them when you were they were supposed to get a spanking you will remember that and focus on those times and be encouraged by the fact that this is who you are i i wrote a description here not a recipe i wrote mm-hmm. a description for who men are in the home and just trying to remind them of that so where do moms fit in? Because I, I think that um, when you were talking about how e- we can even be a friend and be an example of Christ to our friend by loving them unconditionally, um, you know, as, as a mom, I've found opportunities to extend um, radical grace to my children when they're brokenhearted and in fear because they know they've done something wrong. Um, I look for those opportunities, but where, where do moms fit in? I mean, the thing about moms is they fit in everywhere. Um, I was, uh, my dad died when I was two. So I was raised by my mom and my grandma, almost solely my grandpa until I was 11. He died when I was 11 too, was a big help. But, um, 
I mean, my mom did a very wonderful job, I'd say, of sort of discerning law and gospel. I don't think she would have ever termed it that way, but looking back on it, that's what she did. Um, the thing about moms is that, and it, I guess my my caveat here would be to say I hold a I, I personally hold a rather traditional view of marriage um, and and life in the home, not not to an overbearing degree, but just you know I generally think that in my experience of of good marriages that work well, the responsibilities are, are shared for the household and moms usually pick up on the end of making sure everything is working in the house. Not certainly always the case, right? There are dads who do that too. Again, if you're an exception to this, great, you're an exception, but generally that's how it works. Now making sure everything's going okay in the home is sort of unfortunately the other side of this. They're the one that's like, this has got to happen now. We're going to, this is what we're having for dinner and all that. Um, and so I think it's hard. I think um, moms, I, in the book, I say a mom's love is kind of like the sun coming up in the morning. Um, that's God's, that's God's, you know, sort of uh, love for all of his creation that he makes the sun to rise every day and that it warms everyone every day. And that's kind of like what a mom does in the home. It's a different type of love than what I think a father is specifically called to do in the home, but it's no less valuable. Um, we wouldn't be here without that kind of caring love that goes on every day, all over the world, in every home, <laughs> everywhere. I think that moms are too called to be mouthpieces of God's grace. It's just, I would say for the fathers in the home, I really do see it as a very specific sort of centrality to what their role is as a dad. Um, I think moms can do it and I think moms should do it. And I think moms should also look for their times when they have done it and be encouraged by it. I shoot. I think everybody in every relationship that they have on this earth with other sinners ought to try to realize more where they can be gracious and forgiving if possible. Um, and so the same for moms in the home. I just think that it's a very specific calling for dads in the home to be sure that it's happening. It's kind of like to say it this way. I'm in the LCMS Lutheran church, Missouri Senate, which is a very conservative uh, sort of branch of Lutheranism. We don't, we don't ordain women in our church. And so my references for pastors are male. Um, but it's kind of like that, right? In, in our church, a lot of people can forgive one another on, in our church on a Sunday morning, but it's actually the pastor's job in our church to make sure that it's happening every Sunday. It's actually his job to get up and to proclaim the words. Other people can do it and other people should do it, but it's the thing we pay him for. It's why he's there on Sunday. We're there to hear it from him. And when the opportunity provides itself to share it with one another, but it's his job to make sure it happens every Sunday. And that's kind of the difference that I see if that helps at all. Oh, yes. I think that is really helpful in seeing uh, what the role is that you're talking about. Um, I want to back up just a little bit. You um, mentioned something about, you know, uh, showing grace and you gave an example of, oh, you know, maybe you got a hug when you were supposed to get a spanking. Um, I wonder if you can talk just a little bit about the difference between having grace in parenting and just being permissive. Yeah, I mean, uh, sometimes I'll say this, that 
permissive parenting is as legalistic, in my opinion, as full legalistic parenting. Because in permissive parenting, what happens is the children become a law unto themselves. And then they have all the responsibility. When you have all the responsibility, you're being squashed by the law constantly. Um, it doesn't look like that from the outside, but that's what it is. I mean, if you've ever been the boss of anything, or if you've ever managed a group of people, or managed even a household, you know that if all the responsibility is on you, you're being squashed by the law because you're mm. then the law unto yourself. And that's what happens in permissive households. It's as damaging as legalistic households. Uh, the difference is a person um, who is forgiven has come to the point of needing forgiveness. A person who's just been tolerated never needs that forgiveness because everything that they've done, good, bad, or otherwise, is just tolerated. Forgiveness acknowledges that, that a sin has been committed. Hmm. Permissive, permissiveness never acknowledges that there's a sin. And that's the primary difference. Um, you said another way, sort of in law gospel terms, when the gospel is proclaimed, it acknowledges the work of the law. When I walk into a room and say, I forgive you for your sins, that acknowledges that, in fact, you are sinners. Hmm. If I walk into a room and say, it's okay, don't worry about it. Live your best life. Do what you want. Do what makes you happy. That's not, that's, I mean, I think that can be crushing, but it's not, it's not really either one. I mean, this is the biggest problem that we have in, in our society is that the church faces is how do we deal with great sins that are no longer acknowledge, acknowledged as even naughty, let alone great sins. We're completely permissive with these behaviors societally. Thus, I think, and we see this a lot in society, sort of that group of people that demands that permissiveness have become a law unto themselves. Same thing. So to say to someone, I forgive you for what you've done, means that you've done something for which you need forgiveness. Mm. That is not the same thing as not recognizing that they've done something horrible or just saying, it's okay, you be you, not the same thing. You know, um, something that I would, I would love for you to talk about a little bit. I was talking to, to somebody recently that has young children and said um, something like, we don't feel like we're doing enough, you know, for the church, for the Lord. And they're kind of new, newer to reform theology. And I explained the doctrine of vocation to them. And I was, um, since Lutherans are so great on this, could you talk a little bit about that just as um, our vocation as being parents? And, you know, like I, I remember when I had young children, that that was my focus. <laughs> that was my everything. I didn't have time to be doing a lot. You know, when I had four young kids that were newborn, two, three, or two, four, six. Um, but could you, t could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, this is kind of funny. You'll sometimes, my daughter sends me memes like this all the time. And one of the ones, I don't remember exactly, but one of the ones lately, I think was from the Babylon Bee or something like that. And it's like a uh, father for who's faithfully raising his children wonders what he can do for Christ out in the world. You know, and it's like, <laughs> okay, you're doing it, bro. <laughs> I mean, the, he, here's the thing. When I, when I teach this, it's, it's easiest to use the example that a lot of people have said is apocryphal from Luther, 
that it doesn't matter because it's so awesome. We just use it anyway. Where um, when Luther, Martin Luther first started teaching in Wittenberg, his works began to be published very quickly through the new mechanism of the printing press and just spread all over what we now call Germany, like wildfire, um, kind of like, you know, it went viral type thing. And this caused a lot of people from all over the region to come into Wittenberg and try to find him for advice. And they would say things like, I've heard the gospel for the first time from his writings. And as the story goes, Luther is walking through town one day, and this is sort of early Luther. So this is Luther with his nose in a book and dirty clothes and not paying attention to anything because he spent the night in the library, walking through town. And this man sort of accosts him as he's walking through town and says, Dr. Luther, Dr. Luther, I've heard the gospel for the first time, and it's amazing. Now I want to know what can I do for God? What can I do for Christ? Now, Luther is very familiar from where this man is coming from. I mean, this man has been brought up in, in medieval scholasticism, and Luther knows that this man is asking him, what kind of pilgrimage can I take, or what do I need to pay in indulgences, or what extra good work can I do? And Luther looks at him just dead, deadpan in the face and says, sir, what is it that you currently do? And the man says, I'm a shoemaker. And Luther says, sir, then go back to your shop, make your shoes and sell them at a fair price and know that you're doing so to the glory of God. That's essentially the, the doctrine of vocation. It kind of goes just like that. When we understand the gospel, the first thing every one of us wants to know is what special thing can we do for God? And we don't often like the answer when God looks back at us and says, I created all of heaven and earth. I created the universe by the speaking of my word. I saved you. Um, when the word was spoken into your ears and into your sinful heart and stone heart that turned it from that heart of stone into a heart of flesh, my word did that. I don't actually need you to do anything for me. And we're sort of downtrodden because of that. And then he turns around and says, but I'll tell you what, I have called people into your life, people that I, that I hope that you care for, that I hope you serve, and that when you do serve them, that you maybe come to the understanding that it's me that you're actually serving in serving them. Because whenever you do anything for the least of these, my brethren, like your children, your spouse, your father, your mother, your grandparent, your neighbor, your coworker, when you do anything for the least of these, my brethren, you do it for me. That's the doctrine of vocation. God isn't actually calling you to short-term mission trips. He's calling you to serve as a little Christ to those people whom he has called into your life. That's essentially it. Do, do what you do. Get up in the morning. Put your pants on. Put your shoes on. Go downstairs. Make some coffee. And after you pour yourself a cup, pour one for your wife. Hand it to her and tell her you love her. That's serving God. Hmm. You know, I think this is really helpful because... Um, young families had a lot, have a lot of pressure on them. And um, I think, you know, you've talked a little bit so far about um, uh, the state of families in America and even in the church. And I think a lot about the American church and the culture that we have, where there's a lot of churches with lots and lots of programs and um, pressure on families to consume, but then also to be the ones putting on the show. 
And I know that my family has been a part of churches in the past where there's a lot of pressure um, where, you know, what's your ministry? Oh, you know, I'm a dad uh, to my kids. Okay, that's great. But what's your ministry? Um, and, and I'd be like, did you see the kids? Not the kids, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. But I think the doc- doctrine of vocation helps us put a lot of that in order. And, um, I think maybe, um, in, in especially certain segments of American Christianity and churchianity, there's, there's a culture of programs and a bigger and bigger, bigger circus that, um, it's driving us to both consume and put on the show. And it's, it is a lot of pressure. It's, it's an extra helping of law. At least yeah, it was too in much. my family. Yeah. It's too much. I mean, the reality is that if anybody asked me that question, I'd start with, well, I have a wife and I have this thing we call a job and I have children and now I have grandchildren and I've got a gaggle of friends and, you know, that's who, who and what God has called me to do and called into my life. Mm-hmm. That's my ministry. Amen. I actually don't say that as a person who actually runs an actual ministry now. I, would, I, I said that back when I worked for the city of Carson City in Nevada. I mean, this is, this, is, this is the deal. If somebody has a job and a family and parents and a friend or two or three, man, that's a full-time ministry right there. Mm, so true. And I think I think this is especially helpful because, as Angela was saying, there's often so many pressures. And I remember an older woman coming to me when I had four young children, and I was volunteering for this at church and that at church. And she said, "Well, your primary responsibility is your children, not all of these different things at church." And it actually kind of breathed a sigh of relief, like she was giving me permission to. Yeah, amen. Just focus on my kids, you know. Yeah. That's you a, that's don't have to run the I, knitting ministry this semester, no. Colleen. <laughs> yeah. You know, what's funny is we think that of the parishioners, but, you know, when we look at the pastors, we think they're doing a ministry. When in reality, they have a job, they have a spouse, they have children. I mean, they're doing the same thing that you're doing. It just happens to be that their job is in the church. This is what this is what the medieval system was teaching that Luther was fighting against. It was teaching that the only work that you could do for God was if you were doing it essentially in the church. And Luther said, that's, that's, that's ridiculous. This is not how the scriptures speak. You know, if you want to spread the gospel, which all of us should, which the Bible tells us to, start with your family first. Start with your family first. Raise your children in the faith help them experience actual forgiveness so that when we talk about it in the church, when we talk about the miracle of somebody willing to give up their life for them so that they can have salvation, that they've seen something like that that they can recognize. They've seen somebody forgive them and give up things for them that they didn't deserve. How do we expect them to believe it if they've never experienced it even in a, in a little tiny bit, in a shadowy way? They have to. They have to. It's how they stay in the faith. If they can connect that word, which is preached on Sunday, to something that is recognizable to them in everyday life. You know, Scott, I got to share this. Um, there was a there. It's hard for me to even recommend any parenting books anymore because now that I've been through 
raising kids, I look back at some of these parenting books as being horrible. In fact, um, the the parenting book I always recommend is yours. When P- In fact, I just this morning, somebody said, does anyone know of a good parenting book for a strong-willed child? And I recommended your book. Well, thank you. Um, but there was a there there was a parenting book that we were given when we had our first child, and my husband decided to read it first. And he came home and he said, "We're not we're not following this." And this was a very popular parenting book that everyone at church was using. And I said, "Why?" You know, like in my mind, I thought this is a great parenting book. Everybody says it's a great parenting book. And I said, "Why?" He said, "Because this book will teach our children to hate God." And in the book, it was like, okay, every time your child does something wrong, you bring them into a room, you tell them, you know, I have to spank you because God says I have to spank you. Oh, (laughs) my Lord have mercy on my soul. Right. I I know the book. It was very popular at my church too, Colleen. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I'm so grateful for a husband who is so wise because I'm not sure that I would have understood that when I read it, and I really thought about what he said, and I thought, wow, he's right. This will teach our children to hate God. We're going to paint God as the bad guy, you that's know, right. there. And uh, I'm doing this thing that's probably sinful in some way because God told me to. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> I'm really mad at you, and I'm now going to do this thing, but I'm going to blame God for it. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah. And they're so... It's, um, I think, especially in the last several years where I've really reflected on so many, so many different things. And as you know, when you're raising your kids, you have children with different personalities and you may, um, like we have a, we have a son that, uh, has cerebral palsy and he's got a lot of sensory issues and, and he just is very emotional and feels things very strongly and, Mm -hmm. um, how we, how we approached him when there was, um, you know, sin and disobedience and stuff was maybe a little different than how we approached our child that's in your face, you know, very different personality. Although both of them needed the gospel. Right. I've got, I mean, parents, when I've talked, have asked me about spanking a lot and I'm not, I'm not an advocate either way, to be honest with you. But I will say this, um, spanking is essentially consequentialism, right? You take, you're trying to teach somebody not to do something by a very obvious consequence to that. You do this, you get a smack, right? It's, it's kind of too why sometimes when you're teaching a two-year-old not to touch a hot stove, you give their hand a little smack because you're trying to connect to them. You touch that, you're going to get hurt. You know, it, it works in the short term and it, and it can work, you know, I'd say the younger the child is, it, the better. But you got to understand, in a sense, that that kind of teaching of right and wrong is the basest form of teaching right and wrong. Like it's, it's the, the lowest level of teaching right and wrong. And all you're going to get from that is somebody who does something because, or doesn't do something because there might or might not be a consequence. When a few years ago, I was the associate dean at a university um, down here in Southern California. And I, for years and years and years within sort of the university culture, student affairs departments haven't really have struggled with how to, um, in a culture that has no right and wrong, right, how to, how to teach university students that this behavior is right and this behavior is wrong. 
And so I went to this conference and basically the main speaker was a man who sort of embedded himself with a fraternity for a year. And he had some wild stories and he was, you know, everyone's really worried about STDs and pregnancies and drug overdoses and alcoholism and all this. And his argument for how to stop this in the universities was essentially consequentialism, right? That we have to, we have to show them that this is wrong by teaching them about the consequences of if they do it. If they take too many drugs, they're going to end up dead in the hospital or dead. If they pass out from being drunk, they might get raped, all this kind of thing, right? And I put my hand up and said, so really the best we have is the same kind of teaching of right and wrong that you resort to with a two-year-old is to just show them plainly the consequences. It's the basis form. And it's, it's, it's not that it's not never effective. It's just that it can't be the staple. Eventually you have to progress mm. onto actually teaching about right and wrong, to teaching about the value of other people and teaching about what it means to hurt other people and to be a sinner and to be forgiven. That is, that doesn't come through just physical punishment. <laughs> and yeah, and uh, and let, and if we do have to phys- physically punish, let's not blame God for it. And part of the difficulty that I can see there is in only using consequentialism is that um, you know this could be true for small kids and college kids as well. At a certain point, you, you know, I may not always believe that I'm going to receive the consequence. Um, when when it's smaller children, you know, it's a natural, if it's maybe a natural consequence, if I touch the stove, I'm going to get burned. Um, sometimes the stove's not on. So, yes, right. yeah. so uh, oh, I learned, mommy said, don't touch the stove. Yeah. And I just learned, I've touched it three times in a row and it's not, it's not burning me. So I'm, I'm learning that, Hey, it's okay. Yeah. Just like you said, you're not always going to get pregnant. Yeah, All of these te- consequences that are being told. Figured that out? <laughs> right. And not, you know, not to mention teenagers already believe they're invincible and they already yeah. believe that whatever the consequences are, are yeah. not going to happen to them. And my kids do too, even though um, I can be very consistent with giving the consequences. Somehow they still believe they're not going to get them. <laughs> So it really has to come down to more than just Pavlovian kind of training the behavior, but more like, you know, we're trying to address their heart um, and help them to understand right and wrong and not just negative consequences, but the positive consequences for um, doing what's right, uh, loving the Lord, um, loving his commands. You know, Jim, Jim, my doctor father, Jim Nestigan has a great line and I'll apply it to what you said. Children are more aware, like I already said, children, I think are more aware of the law than we think they are mm-hmm. more, more aware of the law than we are oftentimes. Um, and they figured out often before us that the law is a three legged dog. It's always running behind trying to catch up. So not only <laughs> do they believe that at times they will get away with it without, without the consequences, they know they will. That's right. And, and that's why you can't rely on that. You have to teach. You have to have conversations. You have to love. You have to forgive. They'll never come to you um, even when they have the consequence if they believe that all they're going to get is another consequence. Mm-hmm. Your pregnant daughter will never come to you if she believes that once she does, there's a risk of her being put out of the family. 
where there's a risk of her getting an even greater consequence than the one that nature has already given her. That's why it's the, it's the basis, the lowest form of ethical teaching because it actually can't accomplish what it's trying to accomplish. The law can't change the person. Only the gospel can do that. The law condemns the person. The law reveals the person. The law does not change the person. The gospel is the only thing that changes them. It's the power of God into salvation. It's the only thing that turns their little hearts of stone into little hearts of flesh, period. You know, you you were talking right now about um, whether your children will come to you. And I think that's such an important thing. It's something that when I was raising my kids, I wanted my kids to know that they could come to me. And I had a situation with our youngest, he's 16, uh, just a few weeks ago, and he got in trouble at school. And he did something, it, it was not the end of the world, but it was against school rules. And and the teachers made it seem like the end of the world. Um, yes. <laughs> and in fact, the teachers were even dishonest in some of the things yeah. that they said about it. Um, but, you know, he came home, he, he got sent home from school. And I was actually thinking of, of some of the stories you tell in your book as I was waiting for him to arrive arrive home. And I thought, okay, this is my chance. (laughs) This is my chance, you know? And he came in and he was embarrassed and he was brokenhearted because he knew one of the things my kids will sometimes say is, I'm, I'm so afraid I disappointed you. But I realized I didn't, he didn't actually need another punishment at that moment. He really needed to talk and and sometimes that's actually what your kids need. Sometimes when they do something, there's something else going on. And what they really need right then is to talk about what's going on and what they're struggling with. Yeah, I mean, the fact is um, when your kids do bad things, you, can't, you can never promise that you won't be disappointed um, because you might be. You know, the, we all would be in those situations. Um, even with grown children, you know, I, I can't look at them and say, you never do things that disappoint me because you do. I do things that disappoint my wife. My wife does things that disappoint me. My employees do things that disappoint me, and I'm sure I do things that disappoint them. That's sort of the way of things. But what I can try to promise is that I will listen and that I will do my best to acknowledge where I've done wrong and to ask your forgiveness and to forgive and to absolve for where you've done wrong in the name of Christ Jesus. And that's, that's, that's what it means to be a Christian family. That right there. It's not all, all this discipline. It's not, it's not complex. It's get up in the morning, do your thing. When you sin against one another, <laughs> ask for forgiveness and be forgiven. And try not to be retributive. And I want to just tell our listeners, I will tell you something amazing happens um, because it, you learned a lot from Rod Rosenblatt, as did I, um, just hearing him talk about his own father and hearing Ted, his son, talk just um, of the grace that their fathers um, showed them and their understanding of the gospel through that grace. And one thing that that I have really found is when you show grace to your children, they are far more apt to come to you. Oh, for sure. They know that mom and dad's love is unconditional and there's nothing I can do 
to change their love for me. Yeah. And that's your number one goal as a parent that your kids realize that. And it, it really is truly amazing. I've seen just with my own children, just, um, just demonstrating that, that gospel and that forgiveness. I've seen that soften their hearts and them come to you before you even know anything where they come and start confessing. I, mm-hmm. I lied to you last week and I'm so sorry. And, and that's my chance to say, well, you are forgiven. That's right. That's, that's right on, Colleen. That is right on. Well, Scott, thank you so much for, for joining us again. I, I never get tired of this topic, and I think it's so important. It's something that I want to like hammer into the young parents' heads of how important this is. I think our, our natural inclination is towards legalism. Um, we want our children to obey and to to look good to the outside world. You know, it makes us look like good parents when our children are are being obedient and things like that. But really, our goal needs to be what you've talked about here: that our children understand the gospel and they understand it because of of the fact that we demonstrate it to them on a daily basis. And, you know, I don't think I mentioned in the beginning, I think, and I'm so sorry, my dog decides to bark right now, but (laughs) um, so this is real, real life podcasting here, but I, I don't want to neglect to mention the Thinking Fellows podcast, which is just such an excellent podcast. And you are on there with, um, with Rod Rosenblatt. A lot of our listeners are fans of Rod. And so I didn't want to neglect to mention that, uh, whatever podcast app you look you use, look it up. They do so many different things, even though they are Lutheran podcasts, sometimes it's very specific to that. But you guys talk about um, church history, you talk about different doctrinal issues, you talk about all sorts of different things. And it's um, definitely up there as one of my favorite podcasts. So I want to highly yeah, thank recommend you. people go and subscribe, look through the episodes. You guys have, how many episodes are you up to now on Thinking Fellows? Oh man, I think it's 200 and something so yeah it's four years or something like that there's there's a lot and scott was talking earlier about all the podcasts um through 1517 you also have you are forgiven radio um i have a friend that discovered that and she loves listening to the sermons on there really a great a great resource right there and we had dan van voris on last week and his new podcast on church history i want to give a shout out again because it's so good um, each episode, like five minutes, but I learned something every single time that I didn't know. And I'm also encouraged and earlier in the podcast, you said something that Dan says at the end of every episode, which is everything's going to be okay. And that right there is the message that our kids need to really grasp onto because of Christ. Everything. That's right. Be okay. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much, Scott, for joining us. I'm sure we'll we'll probably bring you back on again sometime, but we really appreciate you taking this time. And everything we um, mentioned tonight will be in, linked in the episode notes on our website at theologygals.com. So we will see you next week.